الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب اليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم اما بعد so the uh, title of this lecture uh, is my translation the methodology or the manhaj the Arabic word I'm looking for of ahl sunnah wal jamaah in acquisition derivation of uh, in acquisition of their creed of their creed derivation of its issues and reputation of the heritage. So, the, as I said, the, the title of this lecture and inshallah the lecture after this is The Methodology or the Menhaj of Ahl-Sunnah wal in the acquisition of their creed is how they obtain the aqidah, creed over here in the aqidah, the derivation of its issues, the particulars of that creed, how they derive it, and how do they replicate, uh, how, uh, how do they refute the heretics or the mutabi'een, those who uh, oppose them in matters of belief? Uh, before I start with the lecture, I'd like to explain why did I choose such a topic. I think many people, especially those who are only familiar with English body of literature, would be surprised, you know, what would be the importance concerning that. And that is because I sort of sensed uh, some time ago that while, alhamdulillah, there are strides being made towards teaching people correct aqidah in the sense of teaching them particulars of faith, the whole methodology, the whole basis, the whole foundation upon which Ahl-Sunnah Jama'ah uh, based their faith is not really explained often. And the reason for this is basically twofold. First, that the lack of people who are uh, qualified in North America, not to say that I'm qualified, <laughs> but that uh, the lack of qualified scholars who speak English discuss this. And second of all, because usually this topic has, is uh, in the past found scattered in the works of the scholars, and until recently you did, don't find many works trying to elucidate this methodology in simple terms which can be easily taught in a session like this, until as of late. Uh, previously the scholars throughout the centuries would discuss this either um, in different uh, parts of their book, they would maybe touch on the issue here or there, or they would discuss it in such uh, voluminous work, such large work that it's very difficult to try to digest and then uh, deliver as lectures and so forth. So I put down some points which I gathered from some of these uh, modern writings uh, discussing this, and these scholars or students of knowledge have sort of thoroughly and adequately gone through these classical works and have tried to present it for uh, people to understand. The principles which I'll be talking about, uh, whether uh, Jamal published in a little essay, uh, perhaps I translated in an issue of Al-Bashir about I guess, two issues ago or something like that, concerning the fundamentals of Jamal. So if there are some points that I sort of say quickly and it's difficult to write down, you can refer to that maybe. Right down to these pencils. Out of stock. Huh? Out of stock. Out of stock. Wait until then. We can photocopy it. Uh, we have it on the PC at the hotel. We can maybe print some copies of those full 
but before I get into this topic, is the first issue, and basically I've divided this topic into about uh, three or four sections. The first section is just, is just a basic introduction. What does uh, certain terms mean? I mean, when we're discussing now, we're going to be using terms. I said the word free, for instance, now, as an English term, if you look up in what's the dictionary, look at the word creed, it might mean something uh, not that we're looking for in this discussion. So we're talking about terms like aqidah and tawheed. Uh, what does ahl sunnah wa jama'ah mean? What do we mean when we say the word as-salaf al-salah? These are certain terms which have a religious uh, import to it, a religious significance, and we need to understand these terms in light of the Quran and sunnah. The first part is a little introduction to some of these terms. The second part, will be a discussion of some of the sources of uh, Ahl-Sunnah Jama'ah's Aqidah, which basically covers this first little aspect of it here, the acquisition of their creed. In other words, they base their belief on certain sources, and their five in general, and I will discuss these sources uh, in brief. Uh, the third will be, uh, section will be some unique characteristics that distinguish the Aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah Jama'ah from all other creeds, whether from the different sects which exist within this Muslim community, this Muslim Ummah, and also from other religions outside of the Islamic religion. There are certain characteristics, unique characteristics, and I think I have six or seven, that um, separate the beliefs of the Sunni, Ahl-Sunnah Jama'ah, Orthodox Muslims from all other creeds. And then we come into the third part, uh, which is the fourth part, the derivation of its issues. And these are the 12 principles that I have, or some principles, which how do they actually derive the different issues of belief. And there are about 10 or 12 principles. And then finally, uh, this one, the last principle of these, which they derive, is how they refuse, and this has 20 principles underneath it, and that's the reputation of the heretics. In other words, if those people who go against the Ahlus Jama'ah, how do they uh, uh, refuse them? So this is in general what these two lectures are going to cover and I will try my best to cover this. Just to give you an example of how this topic is a very deep uh, topic, one of these uh, 12 principles or 10 principles that I'll mention in their derivation of this issue, uh, one scholar of Islam, Ibn Taymiyyah, wrote 10 volumes just concerning it. And this is an issue which you might have first discussed uh, uh, from Brother uh, Jamal's uh, tapes on uh, Al-Asraniyun, the modernist, and that's the question of Revelation and reason, and how do we uh, deal with this if we consider, if, there's, if we imagine or if we uh, feel that there's some sort of contradiction. I mean, even Timmy wrote uh, in ten volumes recently was published, uh, an edited version of this manuscript, of one of his works, and you might imagine that in just ten volumes, you know, just for us to discuss this one issue this whole week, if we were just to discuss it, we really wouldn't be able to give the topic its due. So my thought to talk about all these principles of lessons and and try to sum it up in a couple of lectures is really not giving the topic its, its right. However, the idea is just to place a foundation, right, for further investigation and study with uh, qualified people, qualified leaders, inshallah, and that will allow us to, you know, learn from them. We will be able to benefit, but at least now we just try to inform ourselves so when we come across these scholars, we can, you know, uh, benefit from them. Okay, so coming to the first point, and these are, you and I just said, since I see brothers are adding that from the whole headphones to write notes. Uh, introduction. And this is a definition of certain terms. The definition of certain terms. 
what are some, some certain specific terms? Uh, the first term we're going to take is Aqidah, which you'll find me often calling it creek. This is just the way I translate it. Uh, not to say that. Well, sound is the translation. Oh, I know. Okay, so the further task of Well, uh, linguistically, the word aqida, uh, which I've chosen to translate as creed, as I said, has a number of meanings. I mean, in the sense of it's just linguistical uh, import. Any religious term in the Islamic uh, religion, any religious term, usually has a definition which is found in the language, which was used prior to the revelation, prior to the sending of the Prophet And then it has a specific religious meaning, you know, or a convention, religious convention, shari meaning, or istilahi, uh, which is based upon that linguistical meaning. The word aqidah uh, comes from the uh, Arabic maqdar, or verbal noun, uh, aqidah, which means, uh, linguistically has a number of meanings. One of it is to knot, and to bind, and to tighten fastly, or fasten tightly, and to also has a sense of to fortify, and to consolidate, and to cement. These are all the linguistical basis of this word aqidah. However, by convention, when the scholars uh, use this term aqidah in, in religious writing, they mean a certain meaning, and that is any firm, unwavering belief which is not open to any doubt with its beholder. Irrespective of that belief is true or false, any belief that a person has in his heart that's firmly established in that person's heart and it's unwavering, in the sense the person has no doubt concerning the truth of that belief. Irrespective of that belief is true or false in itself, this is called the aqidah in the uh, religious convention. So therefore, uh, tomorrow is Sunday? No, tomorrow is Saturday. I'm missing months and days now. So, uh, uh, Sunday, uh, two days from now, the Christians, you know, will go to their churches and they will, uh, and preach, uh, Ethan the Maryam and his mother Mary, they're Catholic. And they have a belief in the Trinity. This is their aqidah, even though we consider it to be a false belief. Because this belief in their heart is something which is firm and it's unwavering and they hold it to be true. So the term aqidah in the most general sense means any firm, unwavering belief that a person holds in his heart. Whether that belief is true or false. Okay, that's the, the meaning of it. In the most general sense. In the most specific sense, when we say aqidah, we usually refer to the true aqidah, to the Islamic aqidah. And specifically when we say Islamic Aqidah, we mean the, the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, who hold the um, true faith that the Prophet Muhammad came with, as I'll explain shortly. In this context, when we say Islamic Aqidah, we, uh, we mean basically a firm, unwavering belief in a certain amount of certain matters or certain uh, issues. The first issue in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a firm, unwavering belief in Allah, this is the Islamic Aqidah, mind you. Islamic, and of course it's according to Ahl Sunnah al-Jamaah. So it's a belief in Allah, and what is due to Allah, what is His right from worship, Allah, Tawheed, you know, and also obedience. Two, His angel. Three, His scripture. his prophets and messengers 
5, the last day. Six, his, um, his decree and for measurement, which we call in Arabic Qadr. And seven, whatever is found in the Quran, and Sunnah, from matters of the unseen, previous nations, and A, B, and C, and also things that will pass before the day of judgment. And, and four measurements, predestination, you know, you might, four measurements, other, other. And finally, number eight, which is right over here, all absolute issues in the religion whether dealing with faith or uh, action. Can me explain this? We said that the aqid in the most general sense is any firm, unwavering belief, whether true or false. In the specific sense, when we say Islamic aqidah, or the aqidah of jama'ah, we mean certain things, and we just sort of listed them over here. Belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and what is due to Allah from Tawheed, which will be the next lectures after we finish these two lectures, uh, Saturday and Sunday lectures, and obedience towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Faith in these angels, a firm, unwavering belief, you know, with not any doubt concerning his angels, his scriptures, his book, his prophets and messengers, the last day, which is the day of judgment, the, his decree and four measurements, and I mean by this, uh, al-qadr al-qadr, uh, seven, whatever is found in the Quran and the Sunnah, like the Jew and the Esther, uh, concerning matters of the unseen, like concerning, uh, the descriptions of any matter of thing which is un- unseen, the ghayb, as they term in Arabic, the previous nations, like for instance, if you read the Quran, in sort of their text, right? This is a sunnah to read on the Prophet of Jamal. Uh, there's a description of previous peoples, previous nations, like little part of names, right? And also in the sunnah, you find the Prophet talking about the previous nations, and so forth. And also things which will come uh, to pass before the day of judgment, the different signs and the occurrences that will happen heralding the approach the day of judgment. And finally, all absolute issues meaning all issues in which there is no doubt, right? Ever hear the word absolute means there is something that has no doubt to it in the religion, whether pertaining to uh, matters of faith or matters of action. So therefore, the, our belief that the law, there are five obligatory prayers in the day, our belief that uh, the month of fasting is Ramadan, that's kind of everything we're looking to fast during the month of Ramadan, except for those few cases, uh, this is part of the aqidah, because it's an absolute issue, okay, and uh, I'll have some very further discussion concerning that. So we say the Islamic athlete that we need all of, all these matters. Yes, Maybe there's a proof of saying that these are the eight changes. Okay, a good proof, yeah. Obviously, uh, 
with a lot of these issues, the scholars, and this is a good point to bring out, that when we're discussing these issues, there is nothing that says there are eight issues. I mean, the scholars looking into the text of the Quran and Sunnah derive these issues. As far as these issues, uh, for the foundation of faith is drawn from the hadith of the Prophet when Jibreel came to and asked him concerning Iman. And he said that Iman is to believe in Allah and his angels and his books and his messengers in the last day and also to believe in Al-Qadr. Right? The good and evil out uh, consequences of what Allah has decreed. Uh, now, whatever is found in the Quran and the Sunnah, obviously when you say that you believe in the book and you believe in the messenger, that entails believing whatever is in the Quran and the Sunnah. Before the classification, to make it more understandable, the scholars have mentioned three things. The unseen. Because somebody might not, and what do you mean by the unseen? For instance, part of our belief is that we believe that over the hellfire there is a bridge. A surah. And this surah, or bridge, is the Prophet ﷺ described as being as thin as a hair strand, and as sharp as a sword's edge. And the people will pass on it according to the measure of action. I mean, those who have a lot of good deeds will pass very quickly, and those who have few good deeds will crawl, and some of them will even fall off the bridge and fall into the hellfire in the Salah al-Afiyah. So, this matter is a matter of the unseen. It really falls underneath belief in the last day. It falls underneath belief in the prophets and the messengers, because the Prophet Muhammad has told us this. It follows into belief into the scriptures, because there is an indication of this in Surah Maryam. Allah says, none of you accept that they will. Wa'riduha. Okay, and the Prophet is telling to be the Sirat, that any of you will accept will come across it. And also has a, a part of belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the source of this information. He's the one who reveals this to us uh, through the Qur'an and through the Sunnah. Now, some people might not see very quickly the relationship of how a surah spills into these, you know, pillars of faith. So, to tell us for further clarification, they have said all matters of the unseen. You see, just to make it a little bit easier for them to understand. Previous nations also, I mean, by way of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, like about the children of Israel and so forth. And likewise, the signs before the Day of Judgment, that's part of faith in the Day of Judgment, part of faith in the Scriptures and the Prophet Muhammad but also just to further classify, to make it just for the sake of learning, uh, to facilitate learning. And likewise, all absolute issues, just eight things, uh, whether, uh, whether dealing with matters of faith, of belief, iman, or uh, ahkam, actions, regulation, this also is part of belief in the scriptures and the prophets and the prophet Muhammad and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as this is all uh, informed to us through the, through the Quran and Sunnah and the source of this revelation is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of course. So you can see this is just a, a means of classification. In no way it's a hard and fast uh, you know, uh, way of classification in the sense that if somebody was to now enumerate ten matters or to enumerate just six matters, therefore you would consider him to be not possessing the correct faith. And I'll give you an example for that. If, um, for those of you brothers who might know the verse in the Khalakim of Surah Al-Baqarah, the last two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah, where it says, Amir Rasul, huh? So what, what are the matters of faith that they believe in? Looking for more because right? Yeah. How many? Four. So in the hadith of Jibreel. Seven. Seven. Six. Five. One last. 
Uh, I mentioned belief in Allah and his angels and in the book, scriptures, meaning in whole and the last day and the messengers. So, you find the Quran, some principles are mentioned, some other principles are mentioned, but still, this doesn't have any contradiction. Why? Because really, belief in Qadr, belief in Qadr, or belief in this sixth principle, in his decree and four measurements, is part of belief in Allah, because it deals with Allah's actions and Allah's wisdom, which is part of his attributes and so forth. So this really turns into this principle. I mean, it's said by some scholars of hadith that the reason why the Prophet ﷺ mentioned this and separated this from a belief in Allah because uh, the Prophet was aware that people would deny Qadr from his ummah and he wanted to stress the importance of this belief in the subject. And that's one explanation. Now, I'm sorry, this is that one. No. Uh, maybe uh, Some people, if someone says that uh, they will just believe in those five things, which I mentioned in the Quran, and do not believe in the degree, because it's not in the Quran directly, mentioned in all of those five things. Further, later on. Uh, okay, so this is, this is the point I'm trying to make now. I mean, what are we trying to understand here? The word aqidah, what does it mean? It means a firm, unwavering faith. Okay? Uh, belief with the beholder, and then we say the Islamic Aqidah, we mean these matters which I have um, listed over here on uh, the board. Now, we should understand that the question which perhaps might have come to your mind is, is that this term Aqidah, does it appear in the Quran and the Sunnah? I mean, we hear of these people who write to talk about Aqidah, 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 where is this word in the Quran and the Sunnah? And the truth of the matter is that the word aqidah is never mentioned neither in the Quran or the Sunnah, nor is there seems to have, and to the best of my knowledge, anything which indicates this term. However, the term which is used, the Quranic term, which is used is iman. Iman. And this is the Quranic uh, term uh, to use it. Likewise, there are other terms which the scholars of Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah uh, have used of similar meaning, and they are, in many senses, you might consider synonymous, meaning they all mean the same thing. Uh, another term is a tawheed and we find this used uh, by the earliest scholars uh, for instance I always like to give examples of books you can find in the English language Imam al-Bukhari's translation uh, uh, of, of his great work al-Sahir the last volume volume 9 the last book of it in it you'll find a book called Kitab al-Tawheed and the reputation of al-Jahmiyyah so this was a, uh, a term used to explain matters of belief if you look through it you'll find it's just dealing with Allah's attributes and his speech uh, however, they called it a tawheed. And the reason why, because the single most important issue of the Islamic belief is our belief concerning Allah. And our belief concerning Allah is uh, described or stands out in the sense that it has strict tawheed, very clear tawheed in both in the sense of our belief. We don't believe in a trinity. We, believe that, we do not believe that Allah has any partner or that anyone has any equal to his name, sharing his names and attributes. And likewise, a tawheed in our actions and our worship in the sense that we worship Allah alone and we do not divert any act of our worship to anybody besides Allah. So they used to call it a tawheed for that reason. 
Likewise, they would call it a sunnah. And this was probably a very classical term, more used by the classical scholars than the term a tawheed. So these are synonymous terms, okay? Synonymous terms or terms of similar meaning to aqidah. A tawheed, and the example I put in Sahih al-Bukhari, right? And two, a sunnah, we find, if you, for those others who have the ability to read Arabic or who have come across an Arabic book, uh, you'll find that there's a lot of classical works dealing in Aqidah concerning a Sunnah. And they call it by a Sunnah. Imam Ahmed has a work called the Sunnah. His son Abdullah, the son of Imam Ahmed has a work called the Sunnah. Ibn Baqa has a work called the Sunnah. Allah Lakai has a work which is called Shaf Rasul al-Sunnah, Explanation of the Fundamentals of the Sunnah. This was something which they used to use over and over, this term of Sunnah. And in English you will find if you read Sunan Abu Dawood, Sunan Abu Dawood, volume 3, and there you'll find a book called Kitab al-Sunnah, and when you open it up you'll find just basically a discussion of different beliefs held by Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. So they used to call their beliefs and they used to label it as Sunnah. Okay, and the reason why, because the most important thing in what the Prophet Muhammad came with, now, Sunnah meaning what actually the Prophet Muhammad came with, his religion, his sharia, in the most general sense. The most important thing is the belief, because that's the foundation of the Prophet's religion. That's why they used to call it a Sunnah. You know, the scholars have different opinions concerning certain regulations, certain ahkam, uh, concerning certain ways of uh, doing particulars in the worship of Allah subhanahu or particulars in buying and selling, or particulars in marriage and divorce or particularly in ruling and politics. The ulama, going from the time of the Prophet's companions and throughout the centuries, have differed concerning this. And there's reasons for their differences, but there are differences. But in belief, they all had a common belief, and that was a foundation which these, these are based upon, and that is why they need to label these things as a sunnah. And also to distinguish themselves from the people of bid'ah, or the heretics, who they would say these are the beliefs of the people of bid'ah. So if you look at, if you investigate Sunan Abu Dawood, volume 3, Kitab al-Sunnah, you'll find in there, he starts off saying the importance of adhering to the Sunnah, and then he talks about what, perhaps the, uh, the merits of the Prophet's companions who refuse against the Shia, the Rasulah who attack them. He discusses Allah's attributes to refuse those people who deny them. He'll make a discussion of some of the matters we hear after, like uh, the trial and the torment of the grave, the Prophet's uh, pond or pool or uh, basin, Al-Hawl, uh, the bridge over the hellfire at Siraj, to refuse those people who rejected these matters, and so forth and so on. So he's mentioning matters of belief here in that uh, work. Also they would call it the Sul of Deen, the Sul of Deen, uh, I guess this is the preferred American uh, transliteration for these terms. Usul uh, al meaning the foundation or the fundamentals of the religion. And sometimes we call it Usul al-Diyana. Diyana means like Deen. This is the term used by Ibn Baqa in his work. He calls it al-Ibana or the exposition and Usul al-Diyana. The exposition of the foundation of a Diyana or the religion. Uh, the fourth term that they would use is Sikh al-Akbar or the, um, the, uh, the greater fiqh, the greater understanding, 
And this is the term labeled in the uh, work which is attributed to Abu Hanifa. Unfortunately, it seems that the work is spurious and it's not really from the pen of Abu Hanifa. However, you might have seen, uh, I think it's printed by a suh publications in uh, Brooklyn, New York. They have a little few pages just listing some beliefs. They said this is the creed of Abu Hanifa. And however, the work seems to be spurious, as some scholars have pointed out, like the Zahabi and others. So they would call it Zakhul Akbar. So this is just another term that they use. Uh, another term that they would use, and this is probably the last one, is called um, a Sharia. A Sharia. And we find uh, this in a classical book by a scholar called Al Ajuri. Al Ajuri, he has a book called the Sharia, and if you open it up, you'll, you won't find matters uh, concerning the Hudud prescribed punishments or concerning buying and selling or concerning marriage, but rather you'll find an exposition of the faith of Ahlus and Jama'ah. So these are five terms which we will find in the classical writings, all indicate what we now call Aqidah. It seems that in our day, the prevalent term or the parlor of the scholars basically is Aqidah, and that's why the term I, I chose to use for the title of the lecture. And that's the term which we started off in the definition. But these terms are basically synonymous. And they're just different ways of describing that foundation of faith. Now, of course, we said the correct, or not the correct term, or the better term, the term which is found in the Quran and the Sunnah is what again? Iman. Iman. So somebody was to come to you and argue with you and say, okay, where is it that you find that Tawheed, the Sunnah, Suhudin, Zakharaqah, Sharia, and so forth, Aqeedah in the Quran and the Sunnah? You say, no, this is Al-Iman, what Allah has described as Al-Iman, and what the Prophet has described as Al-Iman, and these are just synonymous terms, to describe that reality, which is referred to as Iman of Quran and Sunnah. And it, in itself it's not an issue whether uh, you want to call it an Iman or you want to call it something else. Was there any reason for using these terms other than using Iman and Right. Well, there's, there are some reasons for it. One reason is that as, you know, Islamic civilization sort of um, uh, progressed and so forth, uh, knowledge became uh, codified. Okay, and this is just a, just a, and so the people start to become specialized. When the Prophet would teach his companions, they wouldn't have, okay, today we have a lecture on Fiqh, you know what I'm saying, today we have a lecture on Tawheed, uh, tomorrow is going to be on grammar, and so forth, no. But as the Islamic civilization uh, flourished, they started to specialize and uh, codify their knowledge, and write specific works concerning specific branches of knowledge. And this is a, this is a uh, characteristic of all civilizations, whether it's Based, the civilization is based upon something on revelation like the Islamic civilization or upon pagan civilization. That as they become more advanced, they start specializing in codifying. The second thing is that there, are, there were certain reasons for this. A lot of times that these terms were in reaction to beliefs uh, held by people of bid'ah, of, of heretics. For instance, when the heretics start to speak about Allah, Okay, like the Mu'tazila and the Jahmiyyah, which are two heretical sects, they would talk about Allah and His names and His attributes in an incorrect manner. And they would call this Tawheed, they would say, this is, you know, the correct belief concerning Allah, His oneness, this is monotheism. The scholars then came out and they would write books to refute it. You know, and they would use terms like a Tawheed. Uh, for instance, you find Imam al-Bukhari, who died in 256, he has Kitab al-Tawheed, and in one and in one uh, narration of Sahih al-Bukhari, he says, وَالرَّجُّ عَلَى الْجَحْمِيَةِ It's the subtitle. So it's the book of Tawheed, of affirming, in this sense, Allah's names and attributes, and a, the reputation of the Jahmiyyah, which is a sect which appeared 
uh, towards the end of the tabarin, towards the end of the second generation prior to Imam Bukhari, and they denied Allah's name and attributes. Just as an example, when the people of Bid'ah, of, of heresy, started to talk and deny certain matters, the scholar said, no, this is the Sunnah. This is what the Prophet came for. So he often called Kitab as Sunnah, and so forth and so on. Some of these terms, uh, there is some sort of questionability concerning uh, some of the understandings or some of the application, like Aqidah uh, and Usul al-Din, some scholars are critical concerning some of the finer meanings of these terms because it seems to separate between belief and action and therefore it can have an incorrect uh, import to it. Like it seems that the term Aqidah, as I was reading one time, Sheikh Bakr Abu Zayd was mentioning, that it might have it's really that this term was used by the Ash'ari. Uh, and it has some sort of uh, significance. But then later on it became, uh, you might say, uh, employed by Ahl Sunjama and has a certain specific significance of Ahl Sunjama. So that's some of the reasons, and that's another topic unto itself. But the important point is that uh, outside of these terms, which are were used in the, the parlance of the Sahaja Ahl Sunjama, there are other terms which are which mean the same thing in the sense that they all refer to what people believe in, but they are hallmarks of people of bid'ah, of, of, and people of heresy. They used to describe their belief system. One is called Ilmul Kalam. Okay, Ilm meaning knowledge, and Al Kalam here means uh, dialectic. Okay, okay. Dialectical theology, I think, is the, uh, the, uh, the maybe the way they translate it from Oriental. So, Ilm uh, Kalam is a term used to describe belief by people, usually of heresy of bigger allies, the Ashari's and so forth. A second term, which you find used and used brothers should all be familiar with them, sir, called philosophy. Alright? And has been the Arabic term. But philosophy, uh, okay. So the, uh, the point is that philosophy is a term which refuse, refers to beliefs and so forth, but is is used usually by people of um, ill belief, like people of bigger people of heresy and also disbelievers. Likewise, another term is Tosola, which also refers to certain beliefs, and this is called Sufism and sometimes mysticism. <laughs> and uh, fourth one is theology. Uh, or al-ilahiyat is a term the Arabic way of saying this is also a and finally metaphysics is a practical term used by usually people of ill belief so the point is what I'm trying to say is that when you see these terms right they usually describe belief systems of people who have incorrect beliefs. But the idea, the general idea behind it is they're trying to describe that which certain people hold in their heart as true. The terms which were used by the scholars of Jama'ah, as I said, that, uh, are six basically, if you put Aqid over here, and the term which is employed by the Quran and the Sunnah is Imam. Okay? Yes. Right. Ilm al-Mantaq uh, uh, logic in the sense that he's the science of logic uh, is sometimes 
similar to Ilm al-Kalam, but there's different though. Because Ilm al-Mantaq, usually the issues that they discuss in logic is different than the issues they discuss in Kalam. In Kalam, they try to prove a logic system, and then they try to prove the, um, the, the, the prophethood, the revelation, and then the last thing, the particulars of faith, using certain arguments. While Ilm al-Mantaq discusses things like the definition, what is the definition, what is al-Hajj, and, you know, what is uh, the type of argumentation, you know, demonstration and so forth. They have different types of uh, argumentation and perhaps you know, all will have an opportunity to share that for these, you know, if you have a good discussion. Well, yeah, usually, usually when you find these terms, you will find them used uh, by people with, who have incorrect beliefs. So what I'm trying to say is that in the general sense, we're all talking about aqidah. Because I said in the beginning of the term aqidah, when we say in just a pure sense, aqidah. We mean whatever a person believes, whether that belief is itself is correct or incorrect. People describe that belief, while there are ways in the scholars of Hasidah describe that belief, and there are ways people of bid'ah, of, of heresy, describe their belief. They usually use these terms, and also sometimes people from different religions, also Islamic religions, will use terms like this. The term which you find the Quran is Imam. This is just a brief introduction uh, to that term. <laughs> okay, the next definition we're coming to is now Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. We say that this is a discussion of the creed of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. So, who are these Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah that we're talking about? Now, I have chosen to translate this Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Uh, okay, uh, and I'll try and put it in. I usually translate this, the adherence to the Sunnah. And the Jama'ah being assembled. That's right. <laughs> and the assembly. Okay, so the Adirah of the Sunnah, the Ahl Sunnah, and uh, Al-Jama'ah being the assembly. What does this term mean? Well, Ahl means those people, uh, to be Ahl of something in Arabic, uh, something they translate as people and the people of the Sunnah, it really means the adherence. It means those people who have uh, adhered and followed to the Prophet Sunnah, not only in beliefs, of course, but also in their deeds, in their way of worship, in their uh, way they regulate their affairs. In the sense of meaning they're buying and they're selling and they're trading, in their marriage and divorce, in their politics, in their uh, matters of peace and war, and so forth and so on. And likewise in their morals in their behavior, in their uh, manners and so forth. Uh, this is of course all embodied in Sunnah and Ahl Sunnah al-Jama'ah means, Ahl Sunnah means those people who adhere to this standard of the Prophet came with, this religion, the Sharia, the Sunnah or way of the Prophet because Sunnah literally means the way. And over here we mean, whose way? We mean the way of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Now the Jama'ah, they were called the Jama'ah for three reasons. The first reason is that because they have gathered themselves, or they have assembled themselves upon this sunnah. 
with truth, and they have not divided themselves into different sects. And I will relate to you a hadith shortly about how the Prophet foretold how his ummah would divide into 73 groups. So they were as jama'ah because they gathered themselves upon the sunnah. So there's a source, there's a foundation. Likewise, and they didn't divide themselves into different sects or groups or factions or parties in matters of religion. Okay? Second of all, that they adhere, uh, they're called the Jama'ah because they adhere to a certain understanding by the Prophet's companions. Uh, and the first three generations, you may say, a Salaf al because they adhere to their unanimous consensus, their Ijma'ah, and they adhere to their understanding of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. This is the second reason why they're called Jama'ah. The third reason why they're called Jama'ah is for a reason is because they gathered themselves among, around the truthful Imam, uh, the political leader of their time, the uh, religious Imam, in the sense Imam not in the religious sense but in the political authority of their time, and not revolting out against themselves, since they didn't split themselves off and revolt out against them. So these are three uh, reasons why they were called Jama'at. The first reason because they have gathered upon uh, the Sunnah, not dividing into sects. Number two, because they've gathered to the understanding of uh, the Senate and I'll explain who the Senate are and their unanimous consensus. They have referred to the setup over here. Unanimous consensus. Which we call the map in Arabic. And three, because they do not revolt against the Imam. They gathered themselves, because they gathered upon the Imam, and they did not revolt against Al, you know, Al against them. I'm going to the onslaught of questions concerning the third point now. Yes. Now, people translate that sometimes as the majority. Now, what is the proof of, of each one of these that, that the Jama'a refers to as maybe the Sunnah or Salaf al-Qalih or um, the Imam of the time? Yeah. That. that comes from the points when we derive our points. How do we understand the Quran and the Sunnah? There's a sort of understanding, but quickly, in case we don't ever get to that last point in the lecture. Uh, the, because it was in Mr. Ur said, Ibn Mr. said, the Jama'a, whoever is upon the truth, even if it's by yourself, or even if you alone are upon the truth. So, because we say that they adhere to the understanding of the Salaf and their unanimous consensus, here we have Ibn Mas'ud, one of the Prophet's companions, defined for us who the Jama'ah is. Okay, but it has a religious sense. It says the Jama'ah is, you know, Man Waqaq al Haq, whoever agrees to truth or whoever adheres to truth, even if you're by yourself. Now, as far as the proof for this third, second aspect of the Jama'ah, 
that they are here to the Imam, this is from the hadith of Hudayfa, which is in the Bukhari and elsewhere, Prophet describing the splitting of the Ummah, he said, stick to the Imam and their Jama'ah. You know, on one of the, uh, during the time of uh, March 5th, uh, we we'll have people calling people to help, we go to the hellfire. They stick to the Imam and their Jama'ah. So, here, they are called Ahasim Jama'ah because they stick to the Imam, they do not revolt. Obviously, over here, next by the Imam, a political Imam. That's why Hudayfa said, and if there is no Imam and there is no Jama'ah, Seeing if there's no Khalifa of the Muslims, if there's no Sultan, if there's no Amir, what should I do in this case? Prophet uh, advise him to uh, separate himself from all the different factions, even if he has to go to the jungle and die in starvation, something of that. So the point is, is that these, when we say Ahl Sunnah Jama'ah, or we say sometimes it's Sunni Muslim, or sometimes it's translated as Orthodox Muslim, uh, we're trying to say three things here. We're saying that they are the adherents to Sunnah. And here the Sunnah doesn't just mean Sunnah, as I mentioned earlier, just in belief, right? But it means Sunnah in the most widest sense. It means everything the Prophet came with. Belief, actions, statements, morals, behaviors, and so forth. The proof is that Iyad, uh, yeah, one of the five Ayyad, Al Iyad, Al-Fulayr bin Iyad, when he was asked what is the Sunnah, he said, it means to know what you have placed in your stomach, in your belly. Is it halal or is it haram? He said, he didn't say that a sunnah means to uh, say that Abu Bakr is most adjoined with the Khilafah than Umar than Uthman than Ali and to believe in Qajar and to believe the Quran is uncreated but the literal spoken word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, it means to know what you have placed in your belly. Is it halal or haram? Meaning in the sense that obviously if somebody is going to apply the sunnah to that degree, that he's so careful to make sure that he only ingests that which is halal, by, he should be more careful to make sure that that which enters into his heart is only true and not falsehood. So this was just a way of thinking. But the point is, it shows us that the sunnah, when we say Ahlul Jama'ah, doesn't just mean belief. Although belief is the foundation, as I mentioned earlier. So is this definition clear, inshallah? Huh? They are gathered upon the Sunnah, not divided into sects, factions, groups. Okay. What's the origination? Uh-huh. The Arabic origination? No. Ahlul Well, this is found in some of the uh, statements of uh, Ibn Abbas. He says Ahlul Sunnah wal Ikhlaq, uh, which you can find in uh, the Tafsir of Surah Al Imran, the verses of Al Imran. And Ibn Kathir says here. Now whether this statement is, which has been attributed to Ibn Abbas, whether the chain of narrators reaches him is authentic or not, this is another question. But definitely, we know that Ibn Sirin, who was one of the Tabi'een, uh, as Imam Muslim mentions in his Muqaddimah, in his introduction to his work, he says, uh, talking about the, uh, the origin, as, uh, talking about the, uh, the origin of the Senate, of the chain of narrators, he says that, Prior to the fitna, we would not ask for a person concerning, you know, where did you get this hadith from. But when the fitna occurred, and when the division between the Muslims occurred, we started to ask those of from the people of the sunnah we would accept, and those people who are people of Bidawi would reject. So this term seems to have its um, origin as in this group of Ahlul Jama'an, both words way back in the early time. And obviously, the term sunnah. And the Prophet ﷺ saying to stick to his sunnah 
And as the brother Yasser mentioned in a hadith where the Prophet describing the same sex that is the Jama'ah, you find it in the words of the Prophet Okay, so, and so, the, so the origin of this lies in Sharia, the word Sunnah and the word Jama'ah. But in, used in, together in one word, and it's in Jama'ah, probably Ibn Abbas or Ibn Sarin or in the earliest generations of Muslims at least. What, what did you say? Well, i'tilaq. I'tilaq means those people who, means like jama'ah, means those people who have gathered, you know, and they have um, together, they have not, uh, as opposed to ikhtilaq, which means that they have, um, right, means that they have, um, as opposed to uh, dividing themselves. The this is a this is a difference of opinion between and I'll leave it to the scholars of the hadith to point to us the intent of the Hussein in this case. So, inshallah. So we have the next definition, inshallah, this is the last definition. Then we come to the meat of the topic, inshallah. As-salaf. And usually we say as-salaf this term, Salaf al-Salaf, or Salaf, Salaf literally means those which preceded you. Anybody who came before you, from your forefathers, or anybody, previous generations are called Salaf. Over here, though, of course, we have a specific connotation, we have a specific meaning to it, a meaning those first three generations, the Prophet's companion, those tabi'in, their successors or their followers, and the exiled tabi'in, the third generation, uh, because these were the three generations which were specifically mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu where he mentioned in the hadith of Bukhari, it's referred by Al-Imran bin Hussein, Hussein and others, that the best of mankind was his generation, then that which came afterwards, and that which came afterwards. Some narrations add a fourth generation, and some uh, narrations, uh, wordings only have three generations. So, but generally three generations have been mentioned in this, in this hadith. So, this will mean by Akhtar so we mean the early generations of Muslims, and also by extension, whoever follows them, okay, even if he comes after the first three generations, because we know that the Sahaba, the last uh, Sahabi, died year 110, maybe, right? 110 was the end of the generation of Sahaba. Okay, now the, the end of the generation of Sahabain, I don't seem to recollect all time, but I know that the end of the Aqtar Sahabain is usually considered at the year 210. It's considered when the Aqtar Sahabain has entered, the third generation has entered, the last of them. According to the, uh, the division of the scholars of Hadith and the Tabakat, the levels of narrators. Uh, we know, for instance, that Imam al-Shafi died in year 205. Okay? Um, Imam Ahmed ibn Hamba, who died in the year 241. Bukhari died in 256. Okay? So you can see that these uh, men are not even really strong in the first three generations. I mean, I don't think even Imam al-Shafi is considered from the third generation. He's probably considered from the fourth generation. Imam Malik is considered from the third generation. Uh, from the Ittar Tabi'in. So, obviously, could we now say that Imam al-Shafi, or Imam al-Bukhari, or Imam Ahmed ibn Hamba are not part of our setup, and therefore, their statements are not uh, acceptable, you know, we're only going to take those who come before 2.10 and that's it. No, obviously not. Because whoever 
adheres to that principle of those four, three generations, even if he comes from the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation, or if he comes centuries later, it's like Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah, ibn Taymiyyah, right, who dies in the year 728, or uh, ibn Abdul for instance, who was, I think, in 1205. Uh, uh, these are all considered part of the Salaf in the sense that they all upheld that same principle. Abu Hanifa is 150. Well, he's from the lesser of the second generation. Not because he's, uh, don't misunderstand when I say lesser. <laughs> in the sense that it's usually they divide uh, the succeeding generations after the Prophet's companions to those who fought along the Prophet's companions, they call them Al-Kubra, uh, or the major, and then those, and that would be like Ibn Musayyid, Sa'id Ibn Musayyid. And those are then they're called Al-Rusqa, the mid of that generation, and they're also called the Sughra or Sughar, and that's uh, the third uh, level. Because Abu Hanifa, uh, and he's only met three or four of the Prophet's companions, and therefore he's considered a Sughra. So what's the theory doesn't mean in the sense of his uh, you know, are seen for him, but in the sense that how many of the compliance he has. So, a set of a product therefore means those first three generations, and anybody who adheres to that way, okay, and usually the appellation, uh, uh, we usually call them uh, a salafi, alright, or a salafi <coughs> with uh, I, okay, which is the yeah in Arabic, called yeah nista. When you uh, are associated with something, you usually add this ya to it, and you're therefore like that. So, for instance, if somebody is from Misr, he's called a Misri, okay, or a Shami, or a Mesri, or something like that. And if he's from a certain tribe, he'd be called a Hashimi, <laughs> <laughs> for example, and, or Hashimi, that's better. And if he's also a certain sect, or if he adheres to a certain group of people, he'd be called Hanafi or Hanbali, in terms of the people who follow certain methods and sects. And likewise, in matters of belief, he would be called uh, like Shi'i or Mu'tazili or Khariji, performing the Shia and the Mu'tazili and the Khawarij. And also, if he adheres to the Salaf of Salaf, their understanding, he's called a Salafi. And just, just to uh, make matters clear, because there are a lot of people who seem to be confused these days, this term was used throughout the centuries. It's not something which a bunch of people made up this century. Okay, uh, recently. Some people imagine that. Certain scholars, you know, usually they attribute Sheikh al-Albani, came up with this term and so forth, and unfortunately this shows poor scholarship. If you look at uh, Imam al-Zahabi, Imam al-Zahabi who died in the year 748, okay, 748, and now in the year 14, 13, 14, 13, uh, I missed a day, I missed a month, I missed a year off. It was almost 14-14. In fact, I did that, uh, I went to New York about a month ago, Imam al-Zahabi, in, his, um, in a number of his works, he described certain scholars and called them that they were Salafi, and I'll give you an example. He described Ibn Salah, Ibn Salah has scholar hadith, in his uh, work, Tafsir al-Hasab, calling him Salafi. And also he has a merger, uh, a, um, you might say an index or a concordance of his scholars who taught him, and he described some of them as being Salafi and Hafidah. And in his other work, um, he describes somebody as being Salafi But the point is that this term was used, as you can see, over 700 years ago, and even before that, was used by Salafi. There's no harm in this term, as long as we're trying to say that it is 
an adherence to a set of authority for three generations, right? And obviously it doesn't just mean just trying to stay on your tongue. I mean, you have to adhere to it. Just like when you call yourself a Sunni, I mean, saying that you're here to the Prophet and Sunnah, you should be adhering to the Prophet and Sunnah truthfully and not just by claiming something. So that's the third term. So, opposing this term, since we did uh, different terms before, we should have a term called Al-Khalaf. And something called Khalafi. And this is usually a term. Uh, this is a term which is used. Oh, this is a term which is used not in the linguistical sense over here, meaning that if you're after Salaf, okay, therefore we're al Salaf, but this is a term of uh, offensive. It's a term, a disparaging term, used to mean people who have uh, come later on and they have deviated from the belief in the Salaf. Although the Eshadis, uh, which is a deviated group in belief, they say that the knowledge, they say the people of the Khalaf, were more knowledgeable and more wise than the people of the Salaf. Although the people of the Salaf were sound better off because they didn't speak about these problems that these Eshadis have invented or innovated. So the point is Khalaf is usually used as a discouraging term. So don't consider yourself saying that I am from the Khalaf and something like that because I'm not from the first three generations, you know, you shouldn't describe yourself that way, you can use the term essential. Okay. okay, so now we have, want to mention two hadiths very quickly. And these two hadiths form a foundation for our understanding of Ahadim and Jumaa. And there are many hadiths on the subject. And I invite you to look at uh, volume one of Mishkat um, al and also volume three of Kitab al-Sunnah, uh, uh, Kitab al-Sunnah, you'll find some of these hadiths. But the first hadith, of course, is a hadith which is in Bukhari, where the Prophet said, I'll just mention it in brief, that there was a, a single group upon the truth. Okay? A single group upon the truth. And the second hadith is the hadith which said the Ummah was right in 73 sects, and they're all going to hell, so many people go to hell, and only one will be saved. And the saved group is, in one narration, he says, those who are upon what he is upon today and his companions. Okay? Those are two hadith in brief, and I think they're very well known hadith. This is in Abu Dawood and elsewhere, and this is in Bukhari and elsewhere. So, as I said, there will always remain a single group upon the truth. And then in the one narration said they will be manifest, they will be victorious. Upon those who go against them, and upon those who quit or abandon them. And they will remain such until the day of judgment, in one narration, until the Messiah descends the second time, ancient Maryam. And another narration says, until Allah decrees his matter, meaning that the first day of The second group is that, uh, second hadith, Prophet said that this nation would divide like previous nations divided. And in one narration says, as the Jews divided into 71 sects, 70 of which went into hell, and only one was saved, and the Christians 72 groups, 71 went to hell, and only one was saved, and he said that this Ummah would divide into 73 groups. All of which would, 
and towards Hell, except for one, and the Prophet and companions being very uh, interested in knowing which was the way of salvation, they said that the soldiers was that which he, that's who are they in the Messenger Christ and the five, that they are those who are upon what he is upon today and his companions. So the point over here is the Prophet mentioning his companions provides the foundation or the proof that he said earlier that number Jana'ah means that those people who refer back to the understanding of the Salaf al-Salaf and so forth. The Prophet didn't just say they are just following what he is upon. He said, and my companions were Ashabi. So the companions are the yardsticks to understanding what the Prophet came with. Now let's think about this just from reason uh, prior to the proof of the Quran and Sunnah. You know the Prophet came with a message, with a revelation, right? And Allah the Quran has described it says, where you al-kitaba that he teaches them the book, the scripture and the wisdom, wisdom in the Sunnah as the scholars have mentioned. Who was he teaching this to? Obviously his companions, right? Among his family, like his, the Prophet's wives and his relatives and also those people who believed with him in Mecca and Muhajirun and the people in Medina al-Ansar and even those people in Arabia who became Muslims later on and heard some of the Prophet's teachings. These were his companions, all of them. And these are those who he taught to the book and the wisdom. Their understanding is the Arctic. Now that we are so many centuries uh, separated from the Prophet's revelation, there is no way for us to understand how the Prophet what the meaning of that revelation is unless we refer back to their understanding. And that is in itself a, a great lecture. Maybe you can make a whole week of just on why we should do that. But that's just the foundation. We're just trying to introduce ourselves. Who is this single group that is upon the truth? And who is that that safe set the Prophet described? So let's see what the scholars of Islam have said. Abdullah ibn Mubarak said that they are, in my view, Ibn Mubarak, he died in the year 181. 181. So he's part of that earlier generation. Yeah, he's a Tabari? 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 One of Imam Ahmed's companions, great scholar of uh, Hadith and the Rijal, narrated the Hadith, says they are the people of Hadith, they are Ashab al-Hadith. Ahmed ibn Hanbal said, if this victorious group is not Ahmed al-Hadith, then I have no idea who they are. Ahmed ibn Sinan, who is also another scholar, who died in Sinan but after Ahmed, says they are the scholars, they are Ashab al-Athar, or Athar. Athar and Athar, uh, I read in English, I'm not really sure what he said, he used the plural words. Part of the uh, symbol because both are translated literally in the same way. Uh, it means hadith in this sense. It means that which they inherited in the Prophet. And Bukhari said it means Ashab al Hadith, that they are Ashab al Hadith. And you'll find in Sahih al Bukhari, he mentions in volume 9, in Kitab al Atifam, uh, the Kitab al Sunnah, he says they are the scholars in the translation. But in his other book, Khal. Uh, he says that they are Ashab al-Hadith or Ahl-Hadith. So it shows that they understood, the scholars throughout the centuries, they understood that they themselves, that school, Ahl-Sunnah al-Jumaah, Ahl-Hadith, As-Salaf al-Salaf, they understood that they were the ones who were intended by these narrations of Prophet 
And that's why the Salaf used to say as um, Therefore, we find that Qatada, who was one of uh, the scholars from Al-Basra, from the Tabi'in, he says, uh, it is from the good fortune, Sa'ada. Now, Sa'ada, good fortune over here, good luck, doesn't mean in the sense of a worldly sense. But in a religious sense, that Allah SWT has guided this person that which is good. That Allah allows for the young man who wants to become religious. Or for the person who doesn't speak Arabic, Al-Ajami, that he allows him to come across or meet a person, a scholar, from the people of Hadith. And that's because they realized that for those people who wanted to, whether they were young people and they wanted to become religious, or they were people who didn't speak Arabic, and then therefore they were removed from the source of the Prophet and Sunnah, that the key for their salvation was to meet a man from the people of Hadith. And that is why Qatada said, perhaps it was Qatada or somebody else in Qatada, and said that my maternal uncles, or my fraternal uncles, some of his relatives, were Shia. And some of his other uh, relatives were Qadariya, which is another deviant set. And Allah guided me to a certain person, certain scholar of Hadith in his time, certain scholar of Salaf. And Mujahid bin Jabr, that great scholar of Tafsir, that scholar of Tafsir who Al-Bukhari, uh, who Al-Thawri, excuse me, Al-Thawri, who was a scholar from the third generation, said that if Tafsir comes to you by way, explanation of the Quran comes to you by way of Mujahid, pay heed to it, pay attention to it. Because it is known that Mujahid was one of the students of Ibn Abbas. And Ibn Abbas, the Prophet's companion, was that person who the Prophet made dua for him. He said, Oh Allah, Give him understanding in the religion and teach him ta'weel. Ta'weel in the sense means explanation of the Quran or the meaning of the Quran. Mujahid was one of Ibn Abbas's students and he said that I presented the Mus'haf, the Quran, the scripture to Ibn Abbas three times from one cover to another cover or from its beginning to its end. Stopping him at each verse saying, asking him, what does this verse mean? Concerning who was it revealed and when was it revealed. So Mujahid had all this great knowledge of tafsir. And that's why you find that the earliest scholars of Islam based the tafsir upon the tafsir of Mujahid very often. Imam al-Bukhari, for instance, in his Sahih, when he explains the verses in um, chapter titles, it's not usually translated into English, but in the Arabic. Usually when he's explaining different verses, certain words, he's usually relying upon the tafsir of Mujahid. And likewise, Imam al-Shafi also would do likewise, rely upon the tafsir of Mujahid. What did Mujahid say? Mujahid is great from the second generation. He said, it doesn't matter to me which of these two blessings is greater. The blessing of Islam or the blessing of the Sunnah. And why did he say that? Well, because we know that the only religion which is a man may attain salvation through is what? The religion of Islam. And the only group among the 73 groups within the fold of Islam which a man may attain salvation through is what? The people of the Sunnah. And that's why Mujahid said to me, it makes no difference. Which of these two blessings is greater? That Allah guided me to Islam, or that Allah guided me to Sunnah? Because he realized that, what is he trying to say? That, you know, you need both guidances. You need a guidance to Islam, if you don't follow one of the six other five false religions. Because Ibn Abbas said, and this will probably close up the lecture, Ibn Abbas said that 
The religions are six. Five belong to Satan, and one belongs to Ar-Rahman. And he took this from the verse in Surah Al-Hajj, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that verily those who believe, that's the true religion. And then he said the Christians, the Jews, the Sabians, the Medjus, or the Magians, and those who commit shirk, those are the five religions which belong to Satan. Inna Allah yafsilu baynahum yawma qiyamati that Allah will judge between them on the day of judgment in that which they differ. So the Abbas the religions are six, five belong to Satan and one belongs to Rahman. And like in that one religion which belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concerning the Prophet's Ummah, we know there will be 73 groups and only one will be the saved group. Those who adhere to what the Prophet was upon and his companions. And that is why uh, Mujahid said, it makes no difference to me which of the two blessings is greater. That Allah guided me to Islam or that Allah guided me to sin. So, the importance, that was just a brief introduction just to put some terms, you know, uh, down. I didn't mean to take up all the time in trying to explain these terms, but unfortunate that seems what has happened. So, and I'll leave um, some time now to further have some questions concerning what we went over. And I know you might have some questions concerning some other topics, but hopefully, inshallah, they will be expressed uh, uh, throughout the lectures. Allah will add the kind of answer. He was a great scholar from the Sadr, and he said that it is from the Sa'adah, which means the good fortune, in this sense that Allah has guided that person, has blessed that person, that for the young man, when he wants to become religious, usually youth, from some youth, you know, usually two of things happen, either they get lost in their passion, and some youth Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides that they realize that it's important to become religious. So he wants to become religious now. Which religion shall he follow? And likewise for the non-Arab, because in, especially in the time of the Tabi'in, you might imagine that the non-Arabs were those people who were entering into the fold of Islam. Because early on in this, uh, the history of Islam, the majority of the Muslims were Arabs, and the people who entered into Islam were usually non-Arabs, you know, at that time. That if they wanted to come into Islam, if they were to sit with the Shia, or they were to sit with the Khawarij, or they were to sit with the Qadariyya, they would be going astray. What would be the benefit for them to have become Muslims? Obviously, it's better for them to become Muslims than to remain Christians or Jews or fire worshippers or cow worshippers. But the point is, is that for them to attain full salvation, we need them to adhere to the prophet of Islam. So, Qasada said it is from the good fortune for the young man who wants to become religion, or for that man, the non-Arab, meaning those who introduce the full Islam, that Allah guides him that he comes across a man of the Sunnah. And you can see this very clearly here in the United States. Those people who become new Muslims, they come into the Masajid, and their hearts are filled with love of Allah and His Messenger, If they bump into good brothers, come to do that. Usually their matters stay straight. If they bump into Sufis or uh, other, you know, Qadianis or Shia or modernists or you name it, usually afterwards you find them not necessarily become disbelievers, they revert from their faith, but almost impossible to deal with. They become so entrenched in that in that heresy. And this is a and that's what he said about himself, if, if my memory 
is not failing me. Pythagoras, not because somebody else is Pythagoras. He said that my paternal uncles or my maternal uncles were Pythagoras and the other set of uncles were Allah, which is Shia, and Allah guided me to the Sunnah to a certain individual. So they understood this in their life and they were, you know, they were pleased and they were thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like the Sayyidina of the Jihad. And you're relating it to the Sunnah of yeah, relating this to encourage you brothers, really young men to stick to the Sunnah and find those type of people. That's the intent behind it. Uh, to be upfront. Yeah. This is a good question. Let's understand that when the Prophet mentioned the 73 groups for the Muslims, or the Muslims, he didn't say that the 72 sects which are going to hell are number one, number three, number three. However, the scholars later on, throughout the centuries, in books of concerning different sects, you know, they have tried to enumerate them. But basically, it's based upon their ijtihad, upon their reasoning and their deductions. And that's why if you look at the list, for instance, given by Ibn Jawz in Salvi Tadlis, and the list given by Sheikh Hassani in Al-Fisal, not Al-Fisal, in Al-Milul Al-Nihad, and uh, a list given by uh, Al-Baghdadi in Al-Farqlain Al-Firaq, usually you find differences in these books. Because it's based upon their ishihad. However, we find the Prophet indicating to the major groups of people in Bidah. We find him indicating to the Qadariyah, we find him indicating to the Khawarij, we find him indicating to the Shia in a narration which is related upon Ali and it's authentic on his part, so it's understood that he must have understood this from the Prophet We find him indicating to different groups, you know, in general. So, we find that. But in terms of the Christians and Jews, the Prophet did not say which would be said. But we do know, though, that obviously the safe group would be that group which adhered to what the Prophet came with. So with the Jews would be those people who adhered to the teachings of the Prophet Musa, alayhi salam. And with the Christians, it be those who adhered to the teachings of Isa and Maryam and Messiah, the Messiah, alayhi salam, unadulterated by their own understanding. So obviously this, this group of Trinitarians that we see populating one-fourth of the world are not the same group of Christians. You yes, see. That's yeah. the because they don't follow the teachings of Isa and Maryam. That's obvious. But, so, but who exactly were they? Did they have a certain name? Did they live in a certain time? And so forth. We cannot specifically identify in the historical sense Okay, however, we do know from other hadiths that there were some of them around in the time of Prophet Some of them read the hadith concerning the Salman and Pharisees becoming a Muslim. And the hadith the Prophet says in hadith, uh, which is uh, related to Sahih Muslim by uh, somebody who was in the Mujashiri, uh, I forgot what the first name is. But uh, one of his companions, he said that, Verily Allah looked upon the people of the earth and he hated them, Arabs and non-Arabs, except for a few remnants of the people of Scripture. Meaning that the time of the Prophet there were some few people in the scripture, who uh, still um, adhered to the teachings of the Prophet Musa, and the Prophet Isa, Waraqad bin Nawfal might be an example, uh, the Prophet's uh, wife, Khadija, uh, uncle, also uh, Najashi, Habasha, you know, seems to be an example. So there seems to be some sort of example. But as in terms of groups and so forth, so I don't think we can identify all of them. Okay? Okay. Uh, I have a point. Uh, what 
what is the or is there a difference between if you use the word of Hadith and then the word of Yeah. There's a difference, not historically. Historically, Ahlul Sunnah, this is something in my lecture I forgot to mention this. Uh, Ahlul Sunnah and Ashabul Hadith and Ahlul Hadith and Ahlul Asr are all synonymous terms. However, though, that's in the, in the earliest sense of the word. However, though, afterwards, you know, we find that Ahlul Sunnah seems to be identified in a sense which is more general than Ahlul Hadith. And there's two, uh, understanding for this one correct and one incorrect. The first sense, when you say somebody from Ahlul Sunnah, means he's not a Shia, not from the Shia. And there are various sects. This is the most general sect. This is what people understand today, even the Christians. When you find the Christians writing in their newspapers or in their books, they give this man Sunni, he's not a Shia. Irrespective of what his creed is. If his creed is that of Ahlul Hadith or Ahlul Al-Hizal, if he's a Marquesari or he's a Khaliki, he's a Sunni in the sense that he's not a Shi'i. A second sense means Ahlul Sunnah in the sense that it's equal to Ahlul Hadith. That they have certain specific beliefs. And this is what the scholars meant by Ahlul Sunnah. However, though, um, due to the ascendancy or the appearance of the Ash'ari who labeled themselves as Ahlul Sunnah it then became in the Middle Ages okay when you say Ahlul Sunnah you mean that you are an Ash'ari or you're a Masudi Masudi means just Hanafi Ash'ari it's all means okay <laughs> that's basically they have two different things in Africa that's basically the the difference, you know what I'm saying? So when you can't have a you are Ash'ari or Masudi and Aqid and in Fiqh, you follow one of the four Imams, blindly, and in your Ibadah, you took one of the major Qariqahs, you know. Follow the Abdul Qadir, Jilan, or whatever your Qariqah was. So this is what it meant, the Ahlul Sunnah. So much so that we find a person, a great scholar of Hadith, not scholar of Hadith, a scholar of Aqidah, who, who had correct Aqidah, and he was a Safarini, you know, he has a book called Lawamu al-Anwar al-Tahiyyah. A uh, nice book of Aqidah, uh, which uh, the people of uh, correct belief often use as a major reference. When he says in the beginning of the book, who are Ahl sunnah he says they are the Ash'aris, the Masudis, and Ahl al-Hadith. Or Ahl al he says. This is a completely false, wrong belief, you see. Because he probably had correct belief, he decided to stick himself, you know, amongst them. But there's no way that the Ash'aris and the Masudis are from Ahl sunnah Unless you mean in this general sense, they're not Shia. They say they do not revile the Prophet's companions. They do not curse the Prophet's companions. But, if you mean in Ahl Sunnah as in the book, like as Sunnah by Imam Ahmed, as Sunnah which is in Sunnah Abu Abu Dawood, in volume 3 in English, if you mean Ahl Sunnah in the sense that they believe what Imam Bukhari penned in Kitab al-Tawheed, or what Ibn Khuzayma penned in his work at Tawheed, if you, or what Ibn Baqtah wrote in, uh, in Ibana, they're not from Ahl Sunnah Jamaah. And all these matters they disagree concerning Allah's names and attributes, concerning uh, revelation, concerning the position of reasoning in religion, concerning the position of Qadr and so forth, and lots of many matters. And that's, that's the topic in itself also. But the point is, is that, so Anderson al Jama'ah, you know, you have to be very careful now, because we're looking, you have to understand that when you use these terms, you have to use them according to the, the, the time, though, with the, uh, the term in its, um, 
in its uh, historical context, right? When you say Ahl Sunnah now, the majority of the Islamic world understands that you're Ash'ari or Masudi. In many senses, the terms Ahl Sunnah, except for amongst the people of, of Ahl Hadith, you know, when this term is used, what comes first and foremost to mind are these two groups. And there's reasons why, because uh, historically, there were certain uh, nations which had ascendancy in the Islamic world and took over large areas of the Islamic world. And they, they had certain, usually countries usually have certain beliefs with them. You know? And they, they, they propagated the Ash'ari belief in Africa, West Africa, the Muahideen state uh, of West Africa, and also the uh, Ayyubid state of Muahideen Ayyubis nation and so forth. Uh, and the East, the Islamic East, and those countries which derived afterwards, Saxon Belt, they basically replaced the beliefs of the Hadith with the Ash'ari belief. And that's a subject again. So I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. 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 I don't know. This is something which needs to be, I mean, um, authenticated. It is true that you will find in books of Sikh that they attribute to Abu Hanifa the statement saying that he permitted revolting against the unjust ruler, or the unjust ruler, uh, provided the people feel that they would be able, they would have the ability to overcome that unjust ruler and place a ruler who was more just and pious in his stead. They feel they have the ability for a successful revolt. Uh, the first question is, is that did Abu Hanifa actually say it? That's one thing. And if he did say it, therefore, is, is his statement in itself a proof? No. Uh, and we will see in the, the principles that obviously that we say that no single person from the principles of our beliefs, that we, the foundation of our beliefs, is that there is no single person who is in this ummah infallible from error and sin except for the Prophet Muhammad that everybody else, you know, their statements are all underneath the, or are to be weighed in the balance of the Qur'an and Sunnah. And therefore, we find the very clear hadith of the Prophet which is found in Bukhari, you know, and elsewhere, that the Prophet said that prohibiting his companions to revolt against the rulers, the unjust rulers, unless there was a clear um, disbelief, you know, a sign of disbelief, in which they had evidence from Allah's hands. I mean that this is something which is established in the Quran and the Sunnah. This is disbelief. And not something which they imagine to, to be disbelief. Then that only that time they would be allowed to revolt. Uh, indeed, that time it becomes required to revolt. Unless the people feel that they cannot, they don't have the power to overcome him instead of not to revolt. That's different. But general rule is required to revolt in that case. Right. Now, as far as Abdullah Zubair and Hussein and these others who have been and others historically who have been attributed in the Salaf to have revolted against the ruler, scholars have said that basically these uh, Sahaba or these Tabi'een or these early generations of Muslims uh, made Ishtihad and they felt they were, you know, able. And then afterwards, as Ibn Hajar mentions in Tafsir Ba'i, that this door has been closed by the ulama. So they found that this is an unsuccessful need of change. 
that no matter how much their number or how many their number they will be able to do it plus the presence of the towards the Prophet you know that even if there was an, if it was imagined that it would be possible to revolt against the ruler the words of the Prophet shut this possibility the door for this possibility closed once and for all so how do we explain their position and obviously they didn't receive them the Sunnah because we feel that these were men of of strong adherence to the Prophet Sunnah they wouldn't openly you know go against his words unless they felt that they were doing something which was sanctioned by the religion so either they were unaware of these petty you know what I'm saying? Or they had a special understanding concerning this petty. You know what I'm saying? But either the case, whether they were unaware of the hadith or they had a specific understanding to these hadith, which is faulty understanding, we might say, that as Ibn Hajar mentions in Texas values, the ulama have realized when the earlier generations tried to do this, you know, that it only leads to more problems with it. And as in the same way, he writes in this book, which is translated into English language, probably to use in Islam, called the Fitzpah in Arabic. Yeah, they translate public duties in Islam. And he says that when people try to check an injustice, it usually leads to another injustice. Great church is the initial This is one of the, the symbols of people who turn out that they do not revolt against their unjust rules. Well, I Alright. Well, some people claim that. No, and it's like they can use like a Zahabi used in Saudi Arabia. That would be right. But it wasn't the overwhelming thing used, maybe someone used it like in a Zahabi or someone. But it wasn't the overwhelming thing used in the thing used, okay. That's true. I mean, when did this start becoming so much? Used by certain people? Yeah, right. When did this prevalence of this trend set up here? Right. I mean, obviously, it just needs a historical. Sure. Or is there still an equal? Sure. Obviously, I mean, it needs a historical research, right? Which is beyond, this. I mean, you know, my knowledge to provide, you know, when was this term, when did we gain this currency that it now has. But we do find, though, that the scholars of Islam use certain terms during certain periods of time. For instance, the term Ashab al-Hadith, right? Who uses this term Ashab al-Hadith today? Who uses the term Ahl al-Hadith? outside of maybe the Indian subcontinent, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? It's not known in the Arab world. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's basically not used, you know what I'm saying? However, can we say that the, the, the meaning that this term has is now a defunct meaning? That the that group of Ahl al-Hadith no longer exists? That their time has come and passed and it's just a historical occurrence and a historical group that have... No, obviously not, because the Prophet said always remain one group of his ummah. And the scholars have identified, and this is since the day of judgment, this is the Ahl al-Hadith. Now they might, they might call themselves in one time this, or they might call themselves at another time that. This all is going to be reflected by the, the terms and the, the circumstances they are. And I'll give you an example of the term Tawheed. Okay? If you look in Sahih al-Bukhari, when Imam uh, al-Bukhari uses the word Kitab al-Tawheed, also Ibn Khuzayma, who comes in the century after Imam al-Bukhari, and has a book called Kitab al-Tawheed with Fasifat Fakul-Anamin and the affirmation of the attributes or the qualities of the Lord of the world you don't discuss in it the worship of Allah alone you see the, the issue of Tawheed right in that time was basically affirming Allah's attributes and not negating those attributes and as one of uh, the grandsons of Ibn Abdul Wahab said that's because this the appearance of grave worship right came long after Imam Ahmed and so forth now if you look at Sheikh Ibn Abdul Wahab and his Kitab al-Tawheed Right. All it discusses about what? Singling out Allah and worship. You see? 
And so much so that he only really puts one chapter, the last chapter, to talk about what Allah is about to throw. And most of it just deals about singling out Allah and worship and, you know, protecting the worship of Allah alone. So, here's the term Tawheed, right? In the earliest scholars, in the writings of the earliest scholars, right, it had a certain currency to it, certain understanding. It meant to affirm Allah's attributes. Okay. Nowadays, when you talk about Tawheed, right, you basically mean not just affirming Allah's attributes, but you also mean singling out Allah and worship. This issue of singling out Allah and worship was not an issue in the earliest generation. Even the people of Buddha, the Khawarij and the Shia, the earliest Shia did not used to worship grace. Long after the, the, the passing of the age of Imam Ahmed and Imam Bukhari, this grave worship and the cult of saints and so forth appeared in the Islamic world. So here what I'm trying to say is that the term Tawheed has to be understood in its, in its significance at that time. Can we say that those people who use the term Tawheed to mean one aspect of belief in Allah in that time were incorrect or somewhat negligent or that those who used it in a different sense in later days were incorrect? No. Not whatsoever because it's, it's trying to all describe a certain reality that is worshiping Allah Allah. And likewise with this term. You see what I'm saying? Whether they call themselves, uh, you know, Salafi, meaning they follow a Salaf al-Salaf, or whether they call themselves Ahl al-Hadith, or Ahl al-Hadith, or Ahl al-Athar, or Ahl al-Sunnah al-Jama'ah, these were all terms which were used during a certain historical period and has a certain historical significance to it, right? And that is why, uh, you know, I mean, the term Ahl al-Sunnah al-Jama'ah today, you know, is in, in my opinion, right? Even though people like to use it, uh, it has gained some currency maybe in the last five or six years, you know, as an alternative to using the word Salafi, you know. In, in many circles, when you say Ahl al Jama'ah, it means the Ash'ah. It means the Ash'ah is the Masudi. So when we say Ahl al Jama'ah now, who do we refer to? And who are we? We have to further define it. And just like saying it's Muslim. I mean, our name is Muslim. You know, there's no other name for us, right? When you say a Muslim, who are, which Islam are you describing? Obviously, you mean the Islam of the Prophet Islam. But which of these groups is going to ha- hold the correct, true claim? you know, deed to the, the Islam of the Prophet So sometimes you're required, you know, okay, to further describe the term, you know. And Allahu A'lam, there might appear uh, a group of people, you know what I'm saying, who have completely incorrect belief and call themselves Salafi. I'll give you an example, like the followers of Abdul Qadir Sufi. You know, saying Abdul Qadir Murabat, you know, he writes these works in English. He calls himself Salafi. These are a bunch of Sufis, you know, and they have you know, so one of their books, they insult Imam al-Shafi and so forth, they attack him. How can somebody be uh, Salafi and, and attack Imam al-Shafi? Is that I mean, reasonable to imagine? So, you know, it might become that there might become a certain area of time where when this term is used, people will think of the Qadr al-Sufi and his adherence and his teachings, right? But then, therefore, it might not be permissible to use this term in that specific area. And some other term might be used. You see what I'm trying to get at? Well, all right, I'm going to...